Hello there and welcome in to the Career Competitor Podcast, the show that seeks to light that competitive fire within you in order to jumpstart or optimize your career. My name is Steve Meller. I am an executive coach and culture consultant for my company, Career Competitor. And I'm also a brand new author to my book, Shock the World, a competitor's guide to realizing your potential, which you can grab a copy for yourself on Amazon right now, or you can go direct to my website, careercompetitor.com, where you're also welcome to grab a copy that way. And if you were to do it that way, I'd be happy to sign it for you as well, because I'll be the one shipping it to you. How about that? Now, listen, if you're someone who is considering some big moves, some big changes, or just some personal growth and development that you need to do within your life and also within your career for that matter, feel free to reach out to me, steve at careercompetitor.com. My work today is spanning that of working with individuals that are just competitive, working through their careers, but I'm also working with entire executive teams as well. So whatever it may be, whatever your situation may call for, feel free to reach out to me again. That email is steve at careercompetitor.com. But you're obviously here to listen to a podcast, so whatever platform that you're listening to me on, take the time to subscribe or follow the show. Leave some sort of a rating if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts. I would really appreciate it if you would just click that fifth star before you're done here. And don't be shy. Let people know how much you're enjoying the content. Feel free to share the show with your friends. And let's bring more people into this space so they can continue to work on themselves and also optimize their careers in the process. But for now, let's get to the show. Okay, my guest today is an expert in employment law, training, and human resources in his work as a partner with Duan Morris in their employment, labor, benefits, and immigration practice group. His days are spent traveling the country, ensuring that employers are educated on essential workplace matters such as harassment prevention, workplace diversity, discipline and discharge, hiring and recruiting practices, and the list goes on. His human approach to the world of human resources honors the evolution in that space over the past decade while it also complements the optimal impact he is able to make in his work and truly represents the caring and invested human that I've had the pleasure to get to know here over the last month or so. He's a proud Philadelphia native, highly regarded local softball coach, but most importantly, a devoted husband and unwavering girl dad to his two daughters. I'm delighted to welcome in a guy that I'm truly enjoying getting to know as a friend, Mr. Michael Cohen. How are we doing? I am fantastic. It is. This is gonna. I'm so excited for this. I'm so thrilled <laughs> to be here with you today. Thank you so much for Absolutely, giving me the man. opportunity to chat. Yeah, this is gonna, I'm. I'm super psyched. Yeah, me too, man. And and we've been we've talked about this for a little while now. And um, you know, Julie Amos brought us together uh, a yeah. couple of months ago, and it, it's it's so true that you know good people bring good people together, and I think that's what I've really enjoyed so far about getting to know you. But as I alluded to there in the intro, man. So much of the work that you're doing now, the demand for it has just grown and grown yeah. and grown, rightfully so, in over the last decade now. And here we are today, you're working in this space where the demand is greater than ever. First and foremost, let's start there. What does it feel like to be in a position within a particular part of your industry where the demand is truly so high for what it is that you do? So from a personal standpoint, obviously, it's wonderful. Uh, it's nice to have organizations that seek you out as somebody who 
potentially can have a conversation with their leaders, with their employees about the things that matter to them. Um, so, so personally, it, it's great. I love being busy. Um, I love meeting new people. I, I love having the opportunity to teach. But, but I think more globally, the kind of subjects that organizations are demanding conversations about speaks more to what's becoming more important in the world. And that, to me, is even more exciting. You know, the, the opportunity these days to have, to, to be able to go into organizations and to talk to them about the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion, the importance of mitigating against implicit bias, the importance of mental health awareness, all kind of subject matter that I've grown up with, given my parents saw it were, or are, I should say, and given what was important to them um, to impart on me as a kid. So it's really an exciting time from the employment law standpoint, from the human resources standpoint, and personally, you know, I just couldn't be more grateful that I get to talk about these subjects. Yeah, opportunity is the word that really stands out there, especially from a competitive standpoint. Uh, you yeah. know, I, I think there's, in, in this type of space, I think there's always that opportunity to say, okay, yes, the demand is high, but the topics remain sensitive. The, the topics yeah. remain difficult to tackle. And because of the difficulty, maybe we just tend to say lean away from that. We could, we could, we could choose to do that, but you lean towards it. You you say, listen, I, I see the opportunity, I see the demand, and despite the topics and the difficulty that comes with discussing such topics, you lean into that. Where do you think that comes from? The hard work is the best work, isn't it? <laughs> right. I mean, you were an athlete, you were a coach. The stuff that was easy, you don't appreciate nearly as much. Um, and what did Ted Lasso say? Uh, taking on a challenge is a lot like riding a horse. If, you know, if it's comfortable, you're probably not doing. You're probably doing it wrong. Um, and and I think that's such an important message for for leaders uh, these days. Uh, you, you know, you alluded to coaching, something that I it's you know aside from being a husband, aside from being a dad, it's my favorite thing I get to do. Um, and it's the kind of conversations we have to have with people all the time, which is. You've got to be you've got to be comfortable being uncomfortable, and these topics that you you know that we're talking about really do require introspect. You know they really do require being able to welcome challenges and in you know really embrace the growth that can happen. So this is the good stuff. Uh, it's not to say the other topics aren't important that, that we talk about on a day-to-day -day basis, but these these conversations that are happening right now that really do require somebody to look within. Um, and, and why that matters to me, why that's important to me. Like, so, I mean, I tell people all the time, I'm the product of two strengths. Both of my parents were psychologists. You know, uh, they, by the way, they're incredibly divorced and can barely be in the same room with each other. <laughs> but uh, emotional intelligence was something that really was hoisted upon my younger brother and me from a very early age um, and being in touch with emotion and being comfortable with those kinds of concepts really mattered a lot. And, and it's really neat, um, for lack of a better word, uh, that organizations really want to talk about. Well, I, I think that's such a huge part of this, man, is like to, to, to bring it into emotional intelligence. And when you look at just some of these initial concepts, 
and topics that I, I I presented here, which is just a in so many ways, it's just a, a fraction of what it is that you discuss and work on with people. But we talk about harassment, diversity, discipline, like these. Yes, these are difficult topics, but they are emotional topics. And sure. to to be naive to say that we can keep this structural and we can follow the the tech, the, you know, the, the 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 book, for instance, the HR book, and if we just follow the questions and all this kind of thing. There's a naivety to that, which existed up until, as I was alluding to earlier, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And, and suddenly now yeah. the true human element seems to be embraced. And I yeah. I'm I'm truly curious from the work that you're doing as you travel around the country, how how much is that human element being discussed within, let's say, the professionals that are dealing with this stuff, say within these businesses that you go into on a day-to-day basis? The, the organizations that get it are having these conversations. You you can't assume that everybody's the same, right? I, again, I'll go back to Ted. All people are different people. Uh, and, you know, one of the lessons that I, I took very, uh, very, very seriously, and I actually learned it at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and I was listening to an interview with a guy by the name of Larry Brown, who was the Philadelphia 76ers basketball coach of the early 2000s. And Larry Brown had what I believe was the absolute privilege of coaching the guy who was to this day, pound for pound, the single greatest offensive player in the history of the National Basketball Association, a guy by the name of Allen Iverson. And people may disagree with me, but they're wrong. Um, Allen, you know, Allen was just a force, but Allen was not always the easiest cat to coach, right? And we've all heard all the stories about that. And this podcast I was listening to, Larry Brown was interviewed and he was asked essentially how he was able to get the most out of Allen Iverson, more than any other NBA head coach. And I thought the answer that he gave was so insightful and had such broad application. And what he said was, I treat everybody fairly, but I don't treat everybody the same. I treat everybody fairly, and I don't, but I don't treat everybody the same. When, I, when we go into these organizations, and these days as much or probably more than ever, there's this understanding that 100% consistency, treating everybody exactly, it, 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 it's an anachronistic notion. Sure. Um, you don't get the most out of your people until you know who your people are and what motivates them. Um, you mentioned, and again, I've mentioned, this will be the second time, My aside from being a dad and a husband, my favorite thing is to be a softball coach. And the thing that I took from Larry Brown after I heard that, and I guess I used it a little bit before, but certainly not to the extent that I do now, which is what gets people going. And I know I coached 18 and under for three years as my older daughter. My older daughter, uh, to use Serena Williams' words, evolved away from softball when she went, in, when she went to college. Uh, I coached my younger daughter and was coaching 14 and unders last year. And coaching 18 and under girls and 14 and under girls is like coaching different species. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reality is, yes, you treat everybody fairly. No, you don't treat everybody the same. You can't. You're not going to get the most out of people unless you know what makes those people tick. And these successful organizations are not having me come in and say, you must do this at all times for all people because it just doesn't work. Are there processes in place? Are there structures? There are. But the really successful organizations, which is to say the organizations with the really effective leaders, understand that in 2022, you just cannot lead. You cannot run organizations that way. And those are the messages and I'm incredibly fortunate to work with organizations that get it that want me to communicate to their people. Mm-hmm. And that that's what I that's what I was so excited about having you on, man. Is like I think at the surface when I when I give you the introduction, I do 
and people hear this, they go, oh, it's, it's, a, it's a guy that probably knows HR inside and out. What's what's the competitive dynamic that Steve's bringing by inviting this guy on? And you're going, we, we, we're there now. We're at that point of the conversation where it should be abundantly clear to people. And if it's not, let me spell it out, is that what gets people going? How do you bring the best out of people? And so much of the work that you're doing is continually highlighting the need to invest in the foundation of a human being yeah. invest in the foundation and and understand that through those investments are going to come an awareness a heightened awareness to who this individual is to who these people are as a group and then as you alluded to there with the leaders now we lead at higher levels now we lead with greater impact because now we know who we're leading you know and, and that's that's enormous and you talk about competitiveness like I said, it should now make sense. Like you're, you should be a thriving machine when you're making these types of investments. And I'm curious, like saying something like that. When do you start to sense that not only is your, let's say, the information you're bringing, not only being well received, but what does it look like when it starts to get well applied? Oh, it's, it, and you can see it in the room uh, at times when you're going through a program, you're going through a training, you spend half a day with. A group of people and you can see sort of the the hamster running right like you can see things happening as the the morning or the afternoon of the day evolves but then you hear back from them you know i took this one lesson to heart and you know what i'm getting i'm seeing 15 20 25 30 percent increase in productivity because of this tiny little thing mm -hmm. that we worked on and it's one percent better every day right what is the, what, where can I play in the margins? What are those small little opportunities that I have in order to make a difference, in order from a competitive standpoint to make things better in my team, which therefore increases the productivity or, or the human element of my department or my region? Uh, and part of that comes from, you know, are the leaders themselves taking seriously the lessons? It's really easy. I shouldn't say it's really easy. It's really ineffective when leaders are do as I say, not as I do kind of mm -hmm. people. Um, and by the way, they're completely transparent. Mm -hmm. um, I have worked with people in my life who were able to give phenomenally effective advice to others, but sucked at taking it themselves. That they were, look, we're all flawed, but there, there are people that I have worked with and for throughout the course of my career who, if somebody ever presented to them the way they treat others, the advice they would give is you have to fire that person. Mm -hmm. So until you're able as a leader really to practice in a meaningful way those things that you're trying to impart on others, then you have no credibility and it's not going to make a difference. But once, you, once you're able to really grasp onto the concept, sometimes it's harder to do for yourself than it is to impart on others, you become even, you become even more effective, right? And, and again, we get back to this competitive. Um, it, you're making everybody that you're working with that much more effective. Mm -hmm. um, you can you lean in? Are you able to allow yourself to have some pain through growth? Mm -hmm. And that's the way the growth system will occur. And then again, are we able to impart those lessons to us? Yeah, there's um, there's a there's a transparency, a vulnerable component to to leading the way you're talking about, which again, research would show in the last couple of years is a sort after leadership characteristic. It, yeah. It's this, how, how do you, 
how do you give a part of yourself which may expose you in a certain way as a leader um so that so that those that you're leading can connect with you on a deeper level and I, i'm that it sounds that there's there's a lot of that in what i'm hearing from you the human component is so important look it's always been important but one of the things we've learned over the course of the last few years as much or more than anything else is the importance of skills like listening the importance of being willing to demonstrate a sense of empathy uh, being able to appreciate how hard things are for people at the time. Um, you know, if you can make people understand that you understand the struggles with which they're dealing on a day-to-day basis, you, you have bought loyalty. You have bought a sense of pride in you through your employee, through the people that you're seeking to lead. And, and I, again, back to what we started talking about, I think organizations really are starting to get this, not all, but those that are evolved really are starting to understand this. And what you're seeing then is, again, from a competitive standpoint, you become the desired workplace. You become the organization that people are seeking to go work for as opposed to you're having to go find those people. You're a destination mm-hmm. at that point. Um, and, and organizations that are leading through these concepts, empathy, mitigating instances of bias, the huge one right now, um, understanding the importance of mental health awareness. That's what people want. Uh, am I generalizing? Of course. You know, I can't tell you what 100 people want out of 100 people. Sure. But, but the numbers are pretty clear in terms of what the mental health struggles have been over the course of the last couple of years, what matters to people? And, and studies continue to come out to, to bear that out. It's the, 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 the big part of this too, though, man, is like I, whenever I hear these topics covered and I sometimes look for leaders in, in, in the sense of how they respond to the topic and you kind of see this like turning away, not necessarily respecting some of these things that you're talking about. I see, I've seen that from time to time. When I always see that, I, I can sense that you know deep down they're thinking, okay, I I don't have time for this. I don't I don't have time to to acknowledge and deal with your mental struggles or whatever right. it might be. And there's this almost exact exaggerate exaggeratory is always a difficult word exaggeratory component to it where it's like you hear the term mental health and it's like oh it's a crisis. It's like well. It doesn't have to be a crisis. Yeah. It, it can actually just be an element. It can just be a component of something that someone is dealing with in their space. And that little component, if attended to, yeah. can have is. abundant impact. And, and honestly, and you're right, Steve, you, know, you do hear this from leaders. I don't have time to deal with that. Effectively, what that person is saying is, I don't have time to deal with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what a dangerous message that is to send to your employees, to send to your players, to send to those people who have trusted in you to guide them and to lead them. You're saying, I don't have time to deal with you. Mm-hmm. Because, look, does a mental health struggle define an individual? No, it's a part of, it's a component of who that person is. But it's an important component mm-hmm. of who that person is. And just think about how easy a conversation can be 
where you have one of these, what I love to refer to as, you know, scheduled impromptu meetings with people because they're scheduled on your end, but the employee or the person you're leading doesn't know they're coming. Right. Where you sit down and say, look, what's going on? How are you doing? What, I'm here. What can I do? Effective leaders do things like that. And, mm-hmm. and they cost you literally, and I'm using the word literally the way it was intended to be used. They cost you literally nothing. Mm-hmm. And they engender so much loyalty coming back the other way. And, and you know, so there's a, a parable that always uh, comes to mind. Um, and I, I heard it first on The West Wing, which is one of my favorite TV shows. Yep. Um, and there's this, there's this story. A, a guy is walking down the street. He falls into a hole. And, and you may have heard this before. He falls into a hole and he can't get out. And a, a physician, a healthcare provider walks by. And the guy in the hole screams up, doctor, doctor, please help me. I, I can't get out of this hole. And the doctor writes out a prescription and throws it down the hole and moves about his way, moves about his day. Obviously, the guy can't get out of the hole with the prescription. A member of the clergy walks by. Please help me. I can't get out of this hole. I've fallen in and I can't get out. A member of the clergy writes down a prayer, throws it in the hole. All of a sudden, the guy's friend, Dave, walks by. Dave, my friend, I've fallen into this hole. Can you please help me out of here? And Dave jumps down into the hole. And the guy in the hole is looking at Dave. What did you what are you doing? Now we're both in the hole. And Dave says to him, Yeah, but I've been down here before and I know the way out. Mm. And that's I remember the first time I heard it and how that is stuck with me. And I always I, I always think like I want to be like Dave. Like I want to make sure I'm Dave. And and I, I have two daughters, and my younger daughter Maddie is Dave. Mm-hmm. And I am so inspired by her on a day-to-day basis because that's the way she lives, right? It's always, what can I do for others? And it's not a religious concept and it's maybe it's a spiritual concept. I don't know what it is. Yeah. It's just how, it's how she is. It's how she's wired. And I'm not built like that. I have to work on it more than she does. It comes naturally to her. Mm-hmm. But I make sure that I do work on it because I want to make sure that the people are in my, who are in my world, be it my family, be it my colleagues, be it you know, 14, 16 and under girls that I have the privilege of coaching on a day-to-day, I want to make sure that they know that I'm Dave. Mm-hmm. That if anything comes up, that I am here to help them. And think about what a powerful message that is from a leadership standpoint to be able to convey to people that if they really believe that you'll jump into the hole with them because you know the way out. Think about what you've created in, in terms of in terms of collegiality, in terms of loyalty. I keep coming back to that word. Mm-hmm. In terms of, you know, see our perspective, this competitive advantage over other people. It's it's tiny little things yeah. that make these massive differences. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and for me, it's always like I want to be Dave. I want to be like Dave. One hundred percent. And firstly, love the love the parable. Secondly, so much of your work proves that you want to be like Dave. Um, but thirdly, what I will say too, man, is employees just want to know that your intention is to be Dave. Yeah. You know, yeah. they as long as you are intentionally trying to be Dave, even when you don't have the availability and they they maybe need you to jump down in the hole, 
they just need to know that it's always going to be more than likely that you choose to jump you know and i think that is is so important and again it's easy to sort of look at that and say well if this person's in a hole once a month every month every yeah. year then you go I don't, I don't think i have time to jump down into that hole 12 times a year yep it's like well what if you can jump down nine you know yeah, exactly. <laughs> and maybe that's enough and maybe another friend will come by on those other three times that you can't there make it, it. you right. know and and that mm. and, and you talk about destination you i love that word by the way talking about a a place of work to become a destination absolutely love that it, it, it speaks volumes but loyalty is a competitive advantage you you you've sure said it is. numerous times but there's so many articles out there today about why people don't want to be loyal so why wouldn't loyalty be a competitive advantage you know it's it's obviously something that in this day and age people truly want to feel a need to be loyal but it starts with that how do you become loyal and that's so much about what you're talking about here is for an organization to say not only hey we want you to be loyal no 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 give me a reason to be give me that's a right. reason to be loyal loyalty it's like respect right it's earned you, you don't get it simply because you exist on the planet and and i love what you said right i can show up nine of the 12 times mm-hmm. but here's the thing we're going to set this structure up so that when I'm not available on those couple of times where goodness knows I wish I were, but I can't be for whatever reason, here's what happens in the event that I'm not available. We've created a structure. We are a team. We are here for each other's backs. I have 12, uh, I have this document that I give to my girls um, when I coach these sort of 12 principles of our organization, of our team. And, and one of these pillars is you have each other's back at all times. Hmm. And that's the only way this works. And it's not thoughtful. It's the only way this works in general, whether it's your family, whether it's your organization, unless you have each other's backs and you are willing to let other people have your back, it works both ways, uh, then it doesn't work. Mm. I need people to know, right, I'm here. The really successful leaders who have this competitive advantage have engendered that kind of a sense in the people with whom they work on a day-to-day basis. Those are the best leaders. Those are the people who create this loyalty, who create this tension, who create this destination, all of these things. And and it's and and maybe I, I was gonna say it's not hard because I don't think it's hard. And part of that probably comes from my upbringing. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not immune to that fact. I'm not naive. Um, as the fact that I was incredibly loved as a mm. kid, right? Let's get deep now, man. Let's get on the couch. I, I just I was surrounded by this stuff when I was a kid. So none of this is is new or foreign. I mean, obviously there's learning to be done. Um, but for those people who for whom this is not as easy, mm. it's certainly learnable. It's fakeable mm. at first if you need to. And eventually it becomes second nature. Um, you know, none of us is an expert immediately in anything. None of us is. What was your stroke, Steve? What was, your, what was your best? I was backstroke. Yeah. Right. Because you're probably long, right? Yep. Um, and it was, it, look, backstroke is super, super hard, but you, until and unless you can figure out the turn and the timing on the turn on backstroke, how you can get into the pool as quickly as possible, right? You weren't expert right at first. You had to fake it a little bit. And you had to grind and you had to work and you had to do those little things 
that enabled you to become as wildly successful as you were as a backstroker. I mean, these things have such common, you know, application to workplaces, to teams, to whatever it is. You know, we have some innate ability and the other things we have to learn. And while we're learning, we just keep grinding, right? It's, uh, I was doing a talk, I don't know, 12 years ago, 13 years ago, and I was right behind a sociologist. And I, I totally dug what he did. I was really, really interested in the conversation. And then he used this phrase, and I've stolen it, and I've used it over and over and over again, and, and again, massively broad application. And the phrase was relentless incrementalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this whole idea, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's, yeah. Constant small steps forward, yeah. right? Massive change very rarely happens like that. Usually, as a result of a lot of grinding and a lot of small steps moving forward. And for those of us who don't have the innate ability or the the, the given gift of whatever it is we're trying to do, as long as we keep working a little bit at a time, we're going to get there. Look, I, 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 you know, we're we're never going to become Michael Phelps. It's just not going to happen. You know, right. God didn't say that's what was going to happen. And then, you know, don't have that kind of time, that kind of probably, candidly, I don't have that kind of work ethic like he had. But I can do the best I can do by constantly moving the ball forward, getting a little bit better, getting a little bit more knowledgeable, reading a little bit more, consuming a little bit more content so that I can impart on other people those things that maybe they don't have time to get to. 100%. And, and sport sport has kind of like woven its way in and out of our conversation so sure. far. And I, Shocking, I, isn't it? <laughs> well, this, this is the thing. I, I purposely didn't bring it up deliberately at the beginning because had I, we would have just spoken about the debate of Alan Iverson and Kobe Bryant for the entire time we were on. And I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to go there. So, You're you know, I've got, a picture, man, I've got a picture of Kobe over here and I, I, we're not going to go there. We're just going to leave it. Um, but anyway. <laughs> Let's just say they were they were different cats. They were different cats. We can agree yeah. on that. There's no doubt. Yeah, There's no doubt. For sure. Um, but it, it's so funny that you asked me my stroke because it, it speaks to everything that you're talking about. Because when I was a kid, I'll never forget that you, you kind of had these classes where you were uh, – told whether or not you passed the stroke whatever whatever the standard was for the stroke right. for, sure. for it to be considered a pass and when i first started learning to swim i passed the freestyle i passed the breaststroke i somehow passed the butterfly but i didn't pass the backstroke and then i and then i retested and i didn't pass again and then i retested and i didn't five times later the dude finally said you can swim competent backstroke and what turned out? I ended up being world ranked in the top fifty in the world for my event in backstroke one day. Why? Because there was something about this notion of hey, I had to work a little bit harder to prove yeah. my value, to prove my worth, to prove my potential, my capability in this particular area, and because of that, it always had just a slightly deeper connection with me. Like I kind of want to make it with this part of my swimming and. So much of what you're saying here, again, will be nine times out of ten why someone chooses not to not pursue to. something. Right. And, right. and we're talking about the one. We're talking about that one out of ten. And I know you and I are people that are on this earth right now to encourage people to to shift that fraction and start moving from nine out of ten or one out of ten to three out of ten, five out of ten. Why are five out? Why are fifty percent of people not saying yes? 
despite this being difficult, I want to give it a go. I want to see where I can go with this. And you're saying it exactly right. These leadership abilities or these personal qualities, whatever it is, yes, they come natural to some, but that doesn't dismiss the fact that you can't figure it out yourself. Be comfortable being uncomfortable, right? I mean, those things, I, I truly believe those things that are not given to us, those things that are so unbelievably difficult and that we work so hard to achieve, they are so much more meaningful in our lives. I mean, exactly. My, so I, I mentioned I have two daughters and my, and my older daughter, Mia, is 19. She's a sophomore in college. Uh, she's five feet nothing, 100 and nothing which is not surprising because both my wife and I are five feet nothing, a hundred and nothing. Uh, and when Mia was a kid, and I'll never forget this, when she was a little kid, when she was like 10 or 11, she had just started playing softball, which became her passion as she got older. Uh, but she, like you, was a swimmer, except five feet nothing, a hundred and nothing, tough to do. Um, and breaststroke was not her strongest stroke. It was freestyle. And when you're five feet, nothing, a hundred, nothing in freestyle is your strongest stroke. It's going to be a little bit difficult. Um, so she started playing softball, which was a thrill to me because I was a baseball player. And he was getting a little bit, you know, a little bit better, a little bit better, working, 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 tried out for this travel team and was the last kid coming. Mm-hmm. And I remember having this conversation with him. Um, I, I think he got two choices right. And your choices are you can get pissed or you can work hard. Mm-hmm. And I remember at age 10 or 11, her looking at me going, why can't I do both? And I remember thinking that is such a healthy response for a kid to give. I mean, and what ended up happening was she worked for behind off and became, you know, the one of the couple of best pitchers in her conference for four straight years at five feet, nothing, a hundred and nothing. And wore that so proudly because she knew there was no way she would ever gotten to that level without the work ethic, without the grind. There wasn't a lot of God-given ability there. Mm-hmm. Certainly from a physical stature standpoint, she was not what you look like when you are a successful pitcher in softball, usually bigger kids, stronger kids. And I think he appreciated that and really took mm-hmm. so much pride in that because he knew that it was all the result of the work that you were doing that nobody else saw. Right. And, I was just going to say, I mean, it, it's so easy to, it's so easy to look at the people that it does come easy. It, it, it would be, would have been so easy for your daughter to look at someone who is six foot that is able to compete much, much easier within that space and you even use that um, reference to Michael Phelps earlier in the sport of swimming. Again, it's there's always going to be examples of the best at what they do. And if you're constantly comparing yourself just to that, then you're always going to find five reasons sure. not to do it. You know, and, and and here we are talking about you know the the essence of our conversation being a, being around the human element. And, and for me, when I think about human potential, it, it all comes down to just hey, focus on you. Just f- yeah. focus on you and focus on what you can control. And the more and more you do that, the more and more you're going to see good things happen. That's all you can control, isn't it? Right. I mean, the only thing, and you can't even control all of that. Uh, you, can <laughs> right. do your, you can do your best, but external factors at all times are going to impact your ability to do what those things that you want to do are. But all you can do is put yourself in the best position. And that comes by grinding. 
I mean, that kind of, I mean, again, I, I'm like me, I wasn't born with these gifts, whatever these, you know, I wasn't born with the gifts. I, everything I have, I, you know, you work. For. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have a little bit more control, like you said, but it's still going to be dependent on external factors. Are you equipped? Mm-hmm to handle things when they go sideways you know are you comfortable being uncomfortable um is, is they're just such an important thing from a from a leadership standpoint yeah but, but I, I mean so so much of what you do day to day you know you you're laying the foundations for for organizations to invest appropriately effectively in human potential um you're doing it with with your softball team uh, clearly you've been doing a pretty damn good job as a dad with it too um so with with all that being said man i i i really want to just allow you to leave listeners with maybe just an insight into who you are as a competitor um i i like to i like to sort of share that because for me so much of what we've talked about there is this truly beautiful organic element to everything that we've talked about it but i know having gotten to know you here um, that there is a competitive element to you as well. And I'd love to just allow you the the space here at the end just to share a little bit about, you know, what does the term com- competitiveness come, what, what comes to mind when you th- sort of think of that word specific to yourself? Yeah, and, and it's interesting. Uh, it, it's such a great question. And, and so when I think of competitiveness, it is me on me. Mm. Um, my wife was a D1 tennis player. Um, my kids are super competitive in terms of athletics. Um, and when I think of competition, I think when, when Mia and Jamie, my wife, think of competition, it is an outward focus. Mm-hmm. It is, I need to be better than somebody else. And it's interesting because they were both more successful athletically than I was mm-hmm. uh, because they had that sort of, sorry for the phrase, for killer in, hmm. right yeah. love to win hated to lose more than they love to win mm-hmm. um for me competition has always been me on me am i getting better if it means i don't win i, I, I was always okay with that if it meant i was improving myself whether it again whether it was athletically whether it was in school um, whether it was in terms of emotional growth um whatever that thing was as long as i felt like i was improving the competition was always been always has been with me me on me um so when i think of competitiveness it's what am i doing day to day that is making me a better lawyer a better speaker a better dad better husband a better coach whatever those things are by uh, by the way those were in the wrong order um (laughs) Whatever those things are, for me, the competition boils down to it, it's always me on me, um, and it's very internalized. Uh, and I just want to make sure I'm doing what I can to improve. You know, I I, I go in spurts with the Peloton, uh, <laughs> and there are times where I'll go 90 days in a row where I'm doing something on the bike, and then I get fried on the bike, and it's time to get back outside mm-hmm. and go for runs. And do those kinds of things. And, and when I'm when I'm doing the Peloton, I'll, I'll talk about it more when I'm doing it because I'm more in tune with instructors are or whatever. And I'll have people who I meet and I'm talking to. Oh, what's your what's your screen name or whatever it's called on the Peloton? I'm like, yep, yeah, nope. 
<laughs> and and it's very much because that is for me. Yeah. I am competitive when I get on that bike, mm-hmm. but it's can I go faster? Can I go harder? Can I go longer than I did the day before? It's not about somebody else. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with me. So that's when I think of competition, that's what I think of. When I think of sort of this competitive spirit, and, and maybe that's wrong and maybe that's flawed and maybe that's way too egomaniacal, uh, but that's what I think about. Not at all, because for me, for me, I think competitiveness serves the role that we play. And I think for you as someone who is naturally and consistently serving so many in the work that you do, it's a it's a priority that you're focusing on you. It's a priority that you you know you're you're ensuring that you're continuing to, whether it be education, performance, delivery, whatever. Like you know, there 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 are all these elements that you can be considering about how you can continue to compete with your former self, if you will, and and continue yeah. to push that bar. I think that's right. I think yeah. that's right. Right. Relentless incrementalism. There I have one girl. I have one girl that I coach who said to me at the beginning of the season, "I'm going to get one percent better every practice." Awesome. And some more. Like the right, it's Tyrese Maxey approach to the softball. I'm going to get a little <laughs> bit better every time I step on the field, and that's all you can ask for. I love it. Well, for me to ask a question about competitiveness, and for you not to mention the Phillies are down three two, you know, <laughs> I thought you were just going to stop with how phenomenally the Phillies have been. Pl- Look, the team won hey, eighty seven no, games. They they. Backs against the wall, man. Backs against the wall. They've been at their best. So two games down in Houston. By the time this podcast is released, my belief, you guys could be world champions. That 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 just put it out there. So you know, they won eighty-seven games during the season. Everybody looked up and down that lineup all year long and said, if this team gets hot at the right time, mm-hmm. this team can compete with anybody. Mm-hmm. And they got hot at the right time. They're cooling off a little bit at the moment. Uh, but look, I don't want to face Perlander and face that bullpen anymore. I'm kind of <laughs> done with looking at that Astros team. Uh, but <laughs> what you said is right. Look, it backs against the wall all season. Got to play three games in St. Louis. They beat St. Louis. Got to play the Braves who owned them during the season. They beat the Braves. Got to play the Padres who were the only team as hot as they were. And they beat the Padres. Now you got to come back and you got to win two games against a team that, you know, if you play 162 games, they're going to be the best team in baseball 100 times out of 100. Mm-hmm. You hope you can get the next two and see what happens. Regardless of what happens, I mean, this team has performed. And, and, it's been and a great people, ride. People great who ride. are from Philly, and we we are a lot of things. Um, not all great all the time, and I'm certainly among them. <laughs> but we are proud. Uh, you know, I was at the games. I was fortunate enough to have been at a couple of the World Series games, two of the yep. three World Series games that just happened mm-hmm. in Philly. And it was it was just it was bonkers. It mm-hmm. was loud and it was spirited and it was fun. I mean, nobody was making anybody feel bad unless of course you rolled in with like an Altuve jersey on, then you know, <laughs> that's that's on you. Uh, but it's been fun. And I'm hoping by the time this thing airs that I've already gone to the parade down Broad Street. There you Wednesday, go. But there you go. We'll have to wait and see. We'll have to wait yeah. and see. But hopefully, everyone can see now that this is why I did not bring up sport at the beginning because we, <laughs> we, we I just <laughs> rambled, didn't I? <laughs> we can go on My for bad. another half an hour right now. No, you're good. You're all good. Yeah. But listen, brother, listen, I, I'm so glad that we got around to doing this finally. Um, it, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on. I always give people the opportunity to share, you know, where they can find out more about you. You're, I know you're really active on LinkedIn, but uh, go ahead and tell everyone where they can learn more about all the work you're doing. 
Sure. I work for a law firm called Dwayne Morris. Uh, we're based in Philadelphia. It's an international law firm. Uh, I am active on, like you said, I'm active on LinkedIn. If you put Michael Cohen and Dwayne Morris in, you will find me very easily. That is probably the best place to have uh, to find me. Make sure when you type in Michael Cohen, you end up with the right Michael Cohen, not the one who people think of when they hear the name, which was a little bit of the bane of my existence and then became a lot of fun to play with on social media yep. for a couple of years. Uh, but that's imagine. probably the best place to find me. I appreciate you giving me that opportunity, Steve. Absolutely, man. Of course. And listen, brother, I'm excited to continue our relationship, obviously, off, off offline and, and and continue to to, to learn from you and, and, and be around you and be in your space. And I, I can't thank you again. Uh, I thank you enough, sorry, for, 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 for joining me on the show and just for everything you've imparted with us too, man. I mean, I think uh, relentless incrementalism is going to be a big one for me to hold on to for a little while. So I really appreciate it, man. No, thank you. And it is truly a pleasure to be part of your world. Really, really is. It's been so meaningful already. Thank you. Hey, don't go anywhere. I've got my final thoughts coming up from our guest today. So please take some time, give it a moment, take a drink. I got a couple more minutes I need to get out of you. Some final thoughts. Here we go. So delighted to have Michael join us on the show. He and I have been talking about getting this done for a little while now. So over the course of the last three or four months as we've gotten to know each other, I'm so glad that we've been able to schedule and find the time to have this conversation because I think there's so much quality in here for people to really go away and look for ways to incrementally apply it. And that's the word today, incremental. Why don't we just go ahead and write that word down and make it something that is in our view each and every single day, incremental. Be comfortable. Be okay with incrementally getting better. As small and as it sometimes as they may feel insignificant steps, it's a step nonetheless. That relentless mindset, to use that term, relentless incrementalism, is something that can get you really far in life. Does it give you a fast and quick result? More than likely, no. But it will eventually give you a result. The question will then become, how badly are you willing to wait? How badly are you willing to continue working incrementally towards something significant to make that big impact? So much incredible content courtesy of Michael within this episode. So thankful for his time. I'm sure there were certain snippets throughout that you took away, and I'm hoping that you took some mental notes to go away and apply some of this stuff, certainly on a human element, because again, that's what we are at our core. Take the title away, strip the company that we're working for. None of that is necessarily as relevant as the fact of the matter is we are human beings that are looking to realize our human potential. And if we focus that way, good things can happen. So again, thanks, Michael, for joining us on the show. And thank you as well for listening. It's so important that we continue to grow this audience. So with that being said, don't forget to rate the show. Don't forget to share the show. Also, don't forget to reach out to me, steve at careercompetitor.com. Let me know what you thought. Love to get to know you, even if you have no interest whatsoever in executive coaching. I don't care. I would love to still hear from you because I'm all about growing my community. And hey, maybe you or someone you know could be a good guest for the show. But in the meantime, best of luck with anything and everything you've got going on within your world. And I look forward to doing this all again with you very soon. Bye for now.